Our reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 22. Warning against idolatry. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, and you must be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. We are uh, continuing in our series in uh, 1 Corinthians. In this particular section, uh, we have uh, entitled Joyful Denial. And we are uh, this morning kind of look at this idea again of, of uh, denying uh, certain things in our life joyfully. Um, and particularly around the idea of kind of exposing and escaping um, idolatry, which is the uh, warning that we, we have here in 1 Corinthians. Um, and the first five verses of this chapter are this kind of sobering evaluation of Israel's history with idolatry, particularly in the wilderness, right? Um, he says, for I don't want you to be unaware. Our fathers were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. They ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual cup. Um, they flowed from them. And then this, this staggering verse in verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And I wonder what our historical faith evaluation would be if, if our history, um, our modern history as a people here, uh, were to be uh, recorded for our future generations? Would it be our fathers 
were also baptized into the church. They ate the same spiritual food of the scriptures. They taught faithfully from the scriptures. They were kind of good church-going Northern Irish Protestants. And yet, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. There's a danger there, isn't it? This is what Paul wants us to avoid. He wants us to avoid kind of the trappings of going through the motions of Christianity whilst really having something else go on below the surface. He recounts the history of idolatry, which is really the history of humanity. That is our history. The history of the human race is a history of idolatry in many ways. Uh, And we're a part of that. And Paul is wanting to help expose that and help us escape that. Uh, And so we're just going to look at a few things this morning. The first thing I want us to do is just define this idea of idolatry. Um, This won't be new if you've been around Village for a while. Um, It's it's obviously a common theme in the scriptures. And so we um, look at it time to time as we teach through. So what is this idea of of idolatry? Um, Or or what is an idol? Um, On Friday, uh, Stu and I are are getting ready to fly to Thailand uh, to celebrate our 25th anniversary. Uh, I don't say that to make you jealous. Um, but uh, I've been there before, and it's interesting when you walk around a place that's so different culturally from here. Um, everything is different. Uh, the, uh, the food is different. The smells are different. The culture is different. Uh, thankfully, the weather is different um, as well, but their religious kind of practices are different. It's mainly a, a, a kind of historically Buddhist kind of country, and so you see these massive kind of temples, uh, some massive kind of golden uh, statues, of, of the Buddha, and you can see these literally from miles and miles away as they sit up on these hills and, and different things like that, right? Um, I remember my last time there walking through uh, this massive festival in, in, uh, in Chiang Mai, and um, in the center of this is this really ancient kind of old temple, um, Buddhist temple that's there, and there were literally thousands and thousands of people there offering their, um, offering food, and uh, flowers and money um, to these kind of idols, these statues that had been kind of the, the, that littered really throughout the complex that was there. And, and I walked around just kind of heartbroken at that. <laughs> I, I kind of laugh at, when I think about that visual of me, this like six foot tall white dude walking around like teary eyed while they're all like celebrating and stuff. But um, we can think of idols in this kind of uh, oh, that happens off somewhere else. Those poor, you know, unenlightened folks with their idols. But just like them, we are the same. We have our idols as well. We have our statues um, that represent our gods. Um, for us, it might be our home. It might be our car. It might be our bank account. It might be our position of influence or how many followers we have or our reputation All of these things stand in the same kind of place um, as a golden calf. Um, These are the things that we look to as representative of the things that we worship. And so when we talk about idols, what is it exactly that we're talking about? Idols, as a definition for us this morning, is really anything that we place that's more fundamental for God, more foundational than God for our happiness, our meaning, and our identity. That's what an idol is. And when we think about it in the right kind of terms, uh, in that way, that we see that there's many things that can fit the description. We're far more subtle um, with our idols. And to be honest, when you go to Thailand, you see that their idols are really a lot like our idols too. Humans have the same idols. We might not have a, a golden statue somewhere, but 
most of those people aren't, aren't necessarily worshiping a golden statue. They're worshiping the same thing that you and I worship. They're searching for the same purpose and meaning and identity that you and I are. Our idols are these inordinate desires for even good things. Material possessions, career, family, marriage, achievement, work, health, independence, maybe a political cause, financial security, romance, the approval of other people. None of those things in and of themselves are wrong. Um, you, those are things that, that can be rightly desired in some way. But it's when those desires get unordered or inordinate that we start to get into trouble. We look to the good and created things to become ultimate things. And in doing so, they become our functional masters. They become our functional kind of saviors, our desires. And they ultimately become these kind of idols of the heart. When we think about uh, um, idolatry, idolatry really is the underlying reason that we do anything wrong. It's the reason that, we're, that we break God's commands uh, because we are looking to and worshiping other things. We are motivated by our idols. That's why Jesus can come to earth, experience the same temptation, uh, experience the same kind of longings and things that we do, and yet remain sinless because he's, he's, his motivations are different. His motivations are to please the Father, are to worship the one true God, to worship his Father, Yahweh. Um, for us... We don't make those same decisions. (laughs) We make decisions that Jesus would have never made. We make sinful decisions because our desires are inordinate. We, whether we realize that or not, are worshiping something else. There's something else that we are looking to to satisfy um, these deep-seated desires of our heart. And often these things can kind of go on underneath the surface. We don't even maybe realize that. Um, We don't take time. Um, to do that. We grieve the Spirit as He tries to convict us and show us these things. First John 2 gives us kind of these kind of three categories, right? These, uh, uh, he uses the, the language of lust. We typically think of lust in a sexual kind of way, but really lust is, uh, is again, these inordinate desires, um, the way the Scripture uses them. So he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these kind of categories that we have. These lusts, these inordinate desires that lead to idolatry in our heart. This is what motivates our behavior, isn't it? Our sinful thoughts, our actions, they're not just horizontal. They're not just happening on the plane in our relationships with other people. That's the way the world kind of thinks, right? So you can make your desires, you can, you can follow your heart's desire as long as nobody else gets hurt. As long as everything's consenting. Well, then you basically can do whatever you want, right? Because it's a horizontal kind of way of thinking about how our desires play out in our life. But that's not the only thing that's going on. (laughs) The creator reveals to us there's something more. There's a different dynamic. Sin is connected vertically as well. And it's connected vertically to the thing that we worship. It's connected to our God. Either the God of our heart, these idols that we have created in our own image, or the true God, Yahweh, the God of the universe. And because we are created in his image, whether we recognize it or not, we are created to be worshiping people. And so our behavior reveals what our heart is trusting and worshiping at that particular time and moment. If we were to go back and evaluate our our choices, as we go back and we evaluate the decisions that we've made in our life, um, poor or, or bad, 
Um, and we dig, if we're honest with ourselves, if we dig below the surface, looking at our motivations, why we made these decisions, what was it that was really driving those sorts of things? Paul um, starts to give us some examples, um, and he says these examples are helpful to us. And here we have a couple different examples. You've got is Israel and their history, so Israelite history, the, the history of God's people, uh, the Jews, through that, but then you have Corinthian history as well, so you have the Gentiles. And what's common in both of these are both Jew and Gentile. Both of these people have been delivered by God. The Jews have been delivered from Egypt out of slavery. They had gone through the Red Sea. God had brought them out into the wilderness to be a delivered people, and he, he, he gave them provision. The Corinthians had been delivered, as you and I, from sin and from death. Both had been sustained by God. We see here in the text spiritual. For the Jews, it was spiritual and literal food and drink. Remember, God provides them manna. Um, he provides them uh, water to drink from, as well as spiritual food. For the Corinthians, it was spiritual food and drink, particularly as, as, as embodied in the Lord's Supper. And both, in spite of all of that, were drawn, their proclivity was to be drawn to other gods. The God who had delivered them, the God who was sustaining them, their heart was being drawn to other gods. And this passage speaks about God's judgment and his discipline in their lives. <coughs> When we think about God's judgment, um, sometimes we can kind of bristle at this. You're like, man, 23 people, uh, 23,000 people um, are, are, are judged because of their sin in this. But God's judgment is to lead us back to himself. It's to protect us from going down the road of false gods that lead to slavery, that lead to death. They lead to empty promises. And to discipline us back into a place where we find fulfillment and joy and flourishing. It's also um, for the sake of the gospel, for the witness. So an unbelieving world, you know what skeptics are like, right? You know what skeptics are like when they talk about the church? Church is full of hypocrites. Say they believe one thing, but look at their lives. It doesn't match up. Right? The world abhors hypocrisy. Well, at least in the church. Right? They don't see it as a constant witness. But... But there's a reason why they do that, because they're right. This wish to be consistent, but they're right, right? God is holy. He also abhors hypocrisy too. He confronts those who claim to believe one thing while living contrary to those confessed beliefs. And so let's look at the three examples that we get in the text. In verse 7, we get the first one, this, uh, the worship of a golden calf. In verse 7, do not be idolaters as some were. As it is written, and then he's going to quote the Old Testament, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 32.6. I want us to see and kind of trace Paul's uh, argument here, the examples that he gives. The examples, he says, are given for our benefit, so we don't want to ignore those. We want to look at that. So in Exodus 32.6, you're going to see what he just quoted here. The first uh, few verses before we get to that are, are basically this description, right? When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together. And what did they say to Aaron? Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. God's given him the law. It's taking too long. The people are impatient. Maybe he died up there. Let's create our own God. Let's just, let's, just, let's just do our own thing. 
So they melt down the gold. They create this calf. You know the story, right? And then in verse 6, and they rose up. This is after uh, verse 5. And Aaron saw this. He built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is, this is what this reference is. They desired a visible representation of their God like the other gods and nations around them. Moses was literally on the mountain meeting with God. And they got impatient. Let's create our own God. We want a visible representation of something that we can worship. And look at what happens. Their idolatry affects them at just the level of ordinary practice. We're so far removed from this kind of culture, this just seems like this crazy kind of story for us. I'm not so sure it would have been that crazy for them. This was ordinary practice. It was ordinary kind of culture at the time. They're eating, they're drinking, they're playing. There's culture making that's happening. The actions of idol making, particularly the calf, was sinful. But it came from this twisted desire, a perverted desire for a provider other than the one that they had, the one who had actually rescued them from slavery, the one who had judged Egypt with the 10 plagues, the one who had brought them through the the Red Sea, the one who had provided food and drink and manna, the one who had provided water from a rock in a desert to leave that. We're created to worship. It's our nature. We are all worshiping every single day. The question is just, which altar are you worshiping at? For them, they had rejected the God and wanted a a God in their own, a God that they could fashion themselves. Look at the second example he gives us in verse 8. We must must not indulge sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So turn to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25, we're going to see this um, example as well. And we'll look at the first three verses. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Israel had yoked themselves to this false god of Baal. Now notice the total ordinary perspective again from Israel. What what are they doing? They're just marrying. They're just intermarrying people of other faiths. Happens all the time. Just taking wives, going about their everyday kind of lives, taking up new husbands, whatever it may be. And yet, as they do that, they begin to adopt. They begin to yoke themselves um, to other gods. This idea of a yoke, as you know, is ox. Ox, as they plowed a field, they would yoke two ox together um, with a yoke around their necks so that they would pull together. They would harness the power of those uh, ox uh, in a way that individually they couldn't. They would yoke themselves, tie themselves to. This is what Israel has done. Because of that, they've now yoked themselves to false gods. They've adopted other worldviews. They're worshiping other gods. And God judges them for that. 
He judges them for that. Um, We see a plague that comes in, and uh, 23,000 people die of this plague until they take decisive communal action of repentance, and the Lord yields. Look at the second example. The third example, then, uh, just a few pages previous, Numbers chapter 21. As you're turning to 21, let me read verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10 of Corinthians. He says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble if some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So what's the example he's looking to? Again, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. This seems to be a theme, isn't it? And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out to Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he, might make, that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on the pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he could look to the bronze serpent and live. Again, God afflicts them with judgment, but he also provides us escape in his grace. And this is what leads us to salvation, isn't it? It's, it's God's judgment, him doing what is right, him enacting justice against evil. That just happens to include you and me. But also then taking the punishment himself and mercy. We see the greatest example of this coming together. God's justice, dealing with the sin and evil in the world, and his mercy and his grace in the cross of Christ. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, their idolatry, must like, much like Israel's and us, had to do with normal, everyday kind of stuff. It was eating food, sacrificed to idols in the temple, right? Um, we, we mentioned this last week. This wasn't, this wasn't um, what we might think of like this high liturgy kind of uh, assembly coming together. This was more like a restaurant. Um, this is where all the meat kind of came from. It would go to the temple, be sacrificed to idols. So there was a religious service there. Maybe some devout people. I'm sure people were probably just there as a, hey, this is what we do. This is, this is how you eat. And then there was big banqueting tables. Food would kind of be served. This is where people would eat and dine. You would dine in the temples. It was a part of a kind of a liturgy that was there. I'm sure some people took that more seriously than others, just like today. But Paul calls for them to stop attending these feasts for several reasons. And it gets to the heart of idolatry again. One, our desires, our affections are actually shaped by how we live our ordinary, normal kind of lives. You live by a liturgy every single day. What we participate in every single day. James uh, Smith in his, in his book, um, uh, Oh, it's a trilogy. There's three of them. They all go together. Um, discovering the kingdom. Anyway, you can look it up. Google it. I'll, I'll, uh, uh. He talks about, the, he uses this phrase, these habit-forming practices. 
We think our habits are just our habits, but they're not. Our habits are actually formed by the things that we actually put into practice day by day by day. That's why we should practice the way of Jesus. That's why we gather weekly. That's why we come to the table weekly. That's why we have regular times of of studying God's word. Of why we should be in constant attitude of prayer. These things form us. They shape us as we worship. Our desires are shaped. They're transformed by our habits, by our actions, by our relationships, which is why we should be intentional with all of those things, right? We see this in our habits. If you have the habit of looking at pornography daily, regularly, weekly, whatever that is, that changes your sexual desires. It's a habit-forming practice, but it changes us at a desire level. There's things in our life that we think are neutral, but they're not. They're not neutral. They have a shaping effect. And this is what Paul's getting, that, getting to them at. Is the idol a real thing? Is going there uh, actually, is there anything of substance that's there? Well, not, not in the idol itself, but in the, in the environment of what's happening, the liturgy of what's happening, the worldview of what's being shaped, there is something more going on there, which is this kind of second point, isn't it? There are spiritual realities that we don't fully see or comprehend, but that we need to acknowledge. The Corinthians saw eating at the temple feasts as acceptable because the idols had no substance. We looked at this last week. He acknowledges even in this text as well. Do these, are these idols real? No. Do, they, do, do, do these idols that we're worshiping, that are set up in the temple, are they real? No. But, That doesn't mean that there aren't spiritual forces in play. Paul says, yes, but these temple practices make us susceptible to idolatry and false worship in subtle ways. The idols themselves have no substance, but there is a spiritual, idolatrous shaping system that stands behind them. Look at verses 19 to 21. He says, what do I imply then? That food offering to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, They're not real, they're false, but what does he then go on to say? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So when I travel to Thailand and I see a statue of of Buddha or uh, he's not the only one, there's statues of all sorts of things that are there. Is there any substance in that statue itself? Is there any power in that statue? itself in the actual idol? Of course not. But is Satan and demons, are they real? And are they working in and through a false system of religion? Absolutely. Now take that and apply it to us, our idols of the heart. Even things that can be good. Is there a demonic influence at play in the world trying to twist and manipulate things that are good and given to us to become rightly uh, uh, unordered desires in our heart, causing us not to worship the creator, but created things? Absolutely. And this, isn't, this is what Paul is trying to get at, isn't it? 
He doesn't want them to be deceived. He doesn't want them to be blinded. He doesn't want them to be enslaved or destroyed. The idol is nothing. The meat sacrificed to idols, is that technically sin if you eat it? No. But be careful and avoid the systems that all of this gets tied up with. There's a subtlety there. It's how Satan is described when he first comes on the scene in Genesis. How does he approach Eve? With subtlety. With craftiness. Not something blatantly wrong. Obviously wrong. Food. Substance. Satan's greatest trick, it's been said, is convincing the world he doesn't exist. And we can forget that there are spiritual forces at work. There are demonic systems at work. Paul wants them to avoid these things. He says you can't participate. You can't partake with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There was a a system in play that by them partaking of in that system was leading them to idolatry. So how do we experience idolatry in this way then? How do we experience idolatry? Because he gives us these examples for a reason. What does he say in verse 11? Now these things happen to them looking back at the, those three examples that we just saw in Israel, to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. They're written down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Paul wants them and us to have a framework to understand how we make wise choices in all the small decisions that we make in the ordinary, in the mundane. Idolatry happens in ordinary life. In the small decisions that we make day by day that shape us, that form us, in the liturgy of our life, as it were. Dick Keyes writes this. He says, a careful reading of the Old and New Testaments shows that idolatry is nothing like the crude, simplistic picture that springs to mind of an idol sculpture in some distant country. As the main category to describe unbelief, the idea is highly sophisticated, drawing together the complexities of motivation and individual psychology, the social environment, and also the unseen world. Idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. It is found on center stage. That's true. It's the main battle for our heart. And idolatry happens at the level of appetite. It happens at the level of desire. It shows up, it shows up and, and reveals itself in ordinary eating and drinking and playing and marrying and enjoying sex and going to work and all of these kind of the ordinary moments of our life. These things aren't ends in themselves, but they're means to another end. Personal fulfillment, comfort, security, power, control. And when using created things in such a way as to meet a desire that only the creator can ultimately fulfill, we found ourselves being idolatrous. And here's the thing about idolatry. It spoils life. It actually ruins life because it mutes it. It, 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 
It takes the things that, that we are wanting to enjoy, and it makes them to where we're not able to enjoy these things for what they are, actual gifts from the Creator. Because we look to those things to fulfill us. We look to those things to fill the desires of our hearts, and when they don't, we're left jaded, cynical, skeptical, still searching, still looking. Instead of actually seeing them for what they actually are, gifts to be enjoyed, but not things that are ultimate. Things to be enjoyed as we direct our worship with them and through them to the creator themselves. And so work can actually be enjoyed. Marriage, sex, relationships, they don't have to have the pressure of of giving me everything I need. Because I'm not looking to them for those things. I'm not worshiping those things as idols in my heart. I'm receiving them as good gifts that God has given me to be rightly used in right ways. It'd be like if I bought my son a bike. There's different ways that he could receive that gift. He could just ignore it and never ride it. It just sits there getting rusty, never being used. Now, how would that make me feel as I, as a a father, was trying to give him a gift that that I wanted him to enjoy, that would actually bring him pleasure? And just rejects it, ignores it, doesn't take it at all. Or it could go the other way. He could actually take it, but then use that bike to actually get further away from me. Thanks for, thanks for the bike, Pops. Peace. Right? And he's out on his bike, and he's just like getting as far away from me as he can. Like Both of those gifts, and he's, he's, he's received in a certain kind of way that actually weren't given. It actually ruins, it, it, it damages the relationship between me, the Father, giving him the gift. Or he can use it the right way. For me to look out and see him enjoying the gift, riding it, the thrill, you remember the thrill of like being an eight-year-old, I was going to say boy, only half of you might remember that, or girl, whatever that was, like your first bike or your first kind of experience, you're out there riding, you just feel like so free on your own. Just watching him enjoying that gift and then come back and with gratitude, acknowledging me, saying thanks. Man, I really enjoy that. And I knew he would because I gave him the gift in the first place to enjoy it. There's right ways that we can enjoy the gifts that God has given us without making them ultimate things, without rejecting them. And notice what the Corinthians are doing. And, and really even at times in the, in the Old Testament, what they're not saying is, I want this instead of Christ. They're not rejecting Christ. They're saying, I want Christ and this. I want both of these things. We have to step back and consider the ways that these things shape our desires. Ask us important questions. Stephen has some questions. What drives us to work or not work the way that we do? What causes us to eat and drink or not eat and drink the way that we do? What desires lie behind the way we relate or don't relate to our spouse? What do we daydream about? What do you fantasize about? What do you long for? 
What's the answer to, if only I had this, I would be happy? What is our affection pulling us toward? What is our end goal? Answering these questions helps us discover some of the layers. As we peel back the, like the air layers of an onion, we peel back the layers of our heart, exposing what is at its core. The Corinthians wanted the benefits of the new creational order while still participating in the old creational order. They wanted to participate in the shaping liturgy of the church, particularly the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, particularly in this passage, while also maintaining the shape of the liturgy of the surrounding culture. We think of idolatry as rejecting one God to serve another, but idolatry isn't a choice between two gods. It's the attempt to serve many gods at the same time. why the Bible refers to idolatry as adultery and not divorce. A divorce is just a quick, this is ending and I'm going to this. Idolatry is having both at the same time, isn't it? We want to serve multiple gods at the same time. It ends up leading, leading us into a, a double internal life. Looking for that thing that will fulfill us. If you remember in the Old Testament again, do you remember Jacob? Um, Jacob sees uh, uh, a woman named Rachel who's beautiful, and he wants to marry her, and he goes to Rachel's husband, Laban. Laban makes, him, Laban makes him a deal that he would give him Rachel if he worked for him for seven years. So he works for seven years. Um, at that time, he was kind of hoping that Leah, the older sister, would be married by then. She still isn't. Um, and so he, they deceive uh, Jacob, and he ends up marrying Leah. Don't ask me how that works. Those veils are really thick back then or something. I'm not sure. Right? So he's deceived. And then he goes and he says, listen, you, you, you kind of work me over here. Like, what's the deal? And he has to work another seven years for Rachel. And so eventually he, he has these two wives. Um, again, descriptive, not prescriptive in the scripture. Right? He has these two wives. The problem is, and he loves Rachel. Um, but Rachel's barren and, and isn't producing him children. Leah is producing him child after child after child. And that's a big deal culturally back then. And Rachel cries out, and what does she say? Give me a child or I die. If she didn't have a child, if she couldn't produce a child, her life wasn't worth living in her opinion. And that's a great example of idolatry right there, isn't it? What is it for you? If I don't get this, my life just isn't worth living. Or, or the positive of that, what is it you're pursuing so that you think your life will be worth living? These are questions that we ask. So as we close then, how do we escape this? Unlike false gods, the true God can understand our ultimate desires. Why? Because he actually experienced them. Jesus takes on flesh, condescends, comes to earth, wrestles with every temptation that we do. Every temptation that is common to man. And yet was without sin. He, he lived that same life with the same desires in the same environment that you and I did, yet never capitulates to idolatry. Pleasing the Father, worshiping the Father was his true north, his compass. So how do we do that? How do we participate 
in Christ, to use the language of this text? Well, there's many ways, but one that we see here in this text that we participate is in the Lord's Supper through communion. We're going to talk more about communion um, uh, later on in, in this uh, series, so I'm not going to get into all the things that, I want, that we could say here about communion. We'll do that uh, when we come to the text, and we, we might look back to this, but the bread and the wine aren't just simply symbols. There's something more that goes on here, not in a Catholic kind of way of they become the literal body of Christ or anything like that. But we don't want to overreact either to where they just, eh, they're just these kind of symbols. There's something that happens. We participate. Verses 14 to 17. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Therefore, there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. It's not by accident that the sacraments are ordinary, ordinary physical signs and seals. Jesus feeds us. He nourishes us. With himself. With himself. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Just like the Israelites who looked to God's sign lifted up to escape judgment and death, so do we. So do we. We look to Jesus raised up on the tree. The true God overcomes our adultery with his fidelity. God is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful to himself. He's faithful to us. And so our trust is in the fidelity of Christ, not in our fidelity to Christ. His fidelity, his faithfulness is what we look to. It's the thing that helps us escape the temptation. Look at verse 4. Speaking of them in the wilderness, they ate and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him. And what was the rock? He's not, at this point, he's not talking about the actual rock that Moses strikes. He's actually talking about the spiritual metaphor of what that represents, The rock was Christ. He is our rock of assurance. He is the sure and faithful foundation in which we build our spiritual life on. Jesus meets us in the ordinary, in bread, in wine, in water. He meets our desires. We flee idolatry by clinging to Christ. He is the way of escape. He is the rock by which we build our life upon. And in doing so, then he gives us his spirit, partakers in the divine, and begins to transform us from one degree of glory to the next, changing us at a desire level, at an affection level, empowering us with his spirit 
to be increasingly less satisfied in idols and more and more faithful to him as we feed on his goodness, the goodness of his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Do you see why we do this every week? Because it's central to who we become as God's people. We come and we partake in the body and blood of Christ, in these symbols and seals for us, representing what he has done for us because that's how we escape. It's how we turn our hearts from idols. This isn't just a ritual or a simple liturgy. It's formation. We sit under the word week after week to form us, not just to inform us, We meet together in homes. We encourage one another day by day. We study the word. We enter into prayer together to form us. Spiritual formation, the way of Jesus changing us, transforming us at a heart and desire level. Not guilting us and shaming us and trying to pressure us to fit into a Christian kind of subculture in some kind of way. Highly effective at changing behavior, terrible at changing hearts. Which is why you come back to those first five verses. Hey, these people went through all the motions. They went through the Red Sea. They ate the manna. They did everything else that that the people of God were doing as the people of God. And yet in verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why? Because God's not primarily concerned about what you do on the outside. He's concerned about who you actually are on the inside. What Paul says, though, is what we do on the outside matters because that actually is a part of how we're formed. And so flee from idolatry. Build your life on the rock of Jesus. He is our escape. Jesus is what we need to live a life of godliness as Peter tells us. Let's just pray together. Um, And let's just ask the Lord that he might do that unseen work. I have no idea what's going on inside your heart this morning. It's not my job primarily to know that. I don't even know what's going on inside my heart. (laughs) That's why we need the Spirit's help, isn't it? We need the Spirit's help to show us, to reveal to us those blind spots, to convict us of areas where we're looking even, even to things that are good, but looking for them as our functional saviors to be ultimate. Then we would flee from that. It just ends in disappointment anyway. That we would drink from the rock that is Christ. That we would be participants in Christ, even as we come to the table today. Let's do that. Father, we, we need your help. We need your help because um, we don't always see things through the right lens. We don't see things spiritually at times. Our hearts are deceptive, even to ourselves. We Uh, are experts at justifying things in our life. And so, Father, I pray that you would protect us um, 
in, in two ways this morning, that you would reveal um, idols in our heart in two ways. Um, ways that we are kind of getting on that bike and using that to, to drive ourselves further away from you, the creator, immersing ourselves and, and searching for goodness in those created things. Father, I'd also uh, pray that you would protect us against the legalistic way of thinking, of trying to earn anything by rejecting those things, this kind of ascetic kind of life. Father, we want to be led by your spirit. And that's just harder. It's easy to build kind of rules, or it's easy to just be complete libertarians. It's much harder to, to have to discern these things moment by moment. In the gray, in the ordinary, in the mundane. And so, Father, those of us that call ourselves Christians and claim to follow you, Father, would you help us by your spirit this morning? Would you reveal those areas in our life uh, where you're looking to other things? Even the, the underlying kind of ways that we think about things, would you reveal um, where those are not uh, according to your ways? May we have the mind of Christ that you have promised to us. May we not look to to things that are meant to be enjoyed, even things that we can use in our worship for you as we direct our gratitude, our thanks, our joy in the things that you have given us back to you, the creator, the gift giver. Give us wisdom and discernment on knowing um, what those things are that we can reject, that we can redeem, Um, that we can just receive fully. Father, we thank you for your word that guides and directs us. We thank thank you that it is living and it is active. We thank you for your spirit that applies it to us, uh, that convicts us, that shows us uh, parts of our hearts that that we are unable to even see ourselves. Father, we thank you for the community that you've given us, your church, um, to help us, to encourage us, um, maybe to uh, even to, to edify, but sometimes even to confront Father, may we receive all these things as your goodness to us. And even as we come to the table again to participate in Christ, your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, Father, may we come um, understanding the seriousness of idolatry, our susceptibility to that, and may we come also knowing that this is how we escape these things. It's through Jesus. And may we receive um, this meal even again this morning coming and laying um, these idols at your feet, receiving this means of grace um, that we may go out into the world, um, not as hypocrites, certainly as people who struggle, um, but Father, are struggling with the Spirit's help to live our lives um, in the fidelity uh, to Christ um, that he did so perfectly for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.